Hey guys, John Paulamy here, Actionable Intelligence. Today is Saturday, September 24th, and this is the weekly market update. As usual, the disclaimer, anything that you hear or see on this podcast or video is not to be taken as investment advice. I'm not a financial advisor. I cannot advise you on your personal financial situation. Everything here is for informational purposes only. You should do your own due diligence it's your money. It's your responsibility. Okay. Um, I wanted to get into um, the events over the last couple of weeks, especially this week. I got a lot of emails, direct messages, people reaching out on different parts of social media, uh, asking me like to comment on what's happened over the last couple of weeks. It's very simple. Um, We've talked about this on and off since the central banks around the world have begun their uh, tightening cycle. And what we are seeing is not just in the United States, but now pretty much around the entire world is because of the excessive amount of money that currency units that were created during the um, pandemic. And the fact that goods were not produced in the same quantity you get rising prices. So um, obviously that's not, uh, that's at least in the US, that's one of the major, um, if you look at the polling for the upcoming congressional election, that's one of the top issues, right? Is the inflation rate, the economy, things like this. So, um, you know, the average person doesn't really understand inflation. They just look at it as high gas prices or higher grocery prices. They don't understand how inflation really works, what's going on. Um, and so I will talk about it a little bit. Um, if you want to understand why the markets are cratering, at least in the US I, and more around the world, I will give you my view on that. Um, I recall that I said that there would be quite a bit of volatility because I go back to this um, Stanley Druckenmiller a quote that I've used several times. I know for a fact that I've talked about this several times this year on these videos, but I want to reemphasize this because this is, people are like, why is this happening? I don't understand what's going on. So I'm getting ready to tell you what, why. So when you had uh, all this physical, fiscal, excuse me, um, uh, relief from the government, sending out checks, programs, just create, you know, getting all this money, borrowing money and sending it out to people in checks, you get liquidity. When the Federal Reserve buys mortgage-backed securities and lowers rates to zero, you get this surge of liquidity. I'm not going to go through the mechanism of exactly how it works. Other people are better at that. George Gammon, people like that. Uh, Luke Groman. Uh, what I am going to tell you is that when you have excessive liquidity, you have expanding asset prices. Uh, whether I saw it in everything we've seen it right stocks home prices bond prices you know interest rates were were at a, a historical low and bonds were overpriced um saw it in wines i i uh buy investment grade wines baseball cards uh, investment grade baseball cards i've seen art the whole thing you just saw these wacky prices right for everything and that's you know the crypto uh situation and so when liquidity is expanding, asset prices expand. 
okay? And when liquidity is shrinking, well, what do you think is going to happen? The, the reverse of that. And so I wanted to go back to this quote. And right now we're in a liquidity tightening cycle, okay? I've, I've said that for a long time. Uh, when the Fed is raising rates, when they're now into the QT mode, quantitative tightening, liquidity is going to be drawn out of the market. So you're going to see asset prices decrease, okay? Now, if you are a real investor slash speculator, this should not bother you. Yes, everybody wants their investments to go up in a linear fashion from the lower left to the upper right on the chart, but this isn't how things work. And so let's get back to the Stanley Druckenmiller quote. Quote, earnings don't move the overall market. It's the Federal Reserve Board. Focus on the central banks and focus on the movement of liquidity. Most people in the market are looking for earnings and conventional measures. It's liquidity that moves market. Now we're talking about the overall market. There are individual stocks that have things going on with them uh, that uh, you know we focus on during our speculations and, and, and during investing because they're real businesses. We're talking about the general market. And so when the market's in a bull market, most stocks are going up. Conversely, when you're in a bear market, most stocks are going down, regardless of their near-term fundamentals. Um, we've seen that, right? I can point out example after example of, of companies whose business is doing fairly well, even in this environment, or will do well, and their stock prices are going to compress because liquidity is being pulled out of the market. It's deflated. It's like taking air out of a tire. It's just that simple. Uh, that's the overall you know, trends, if you will. Yes, there will be individual companies here and there that will buck the trend, but you need to understand this. And so, you know, there's a uh, book, um, I can't remember the name of it, top, top of my head, but it's Marty Zweig, who was a famous uh, trader, uh, investor. I followed him. He used to be on Wall Street Week with Louis Rukeyser when I was a kid watching him. And he used to have this, I don't think he came up with the term, but he was the one that really promulgated it. It was three steps in a stumble. If the Federal Reserve raises rates three times in a row, the market typically goes, you know, stumbles and goes down. Conversely, when they start cutting rates, the market bottoms and turns around. Um, these are general concepts. They're not, you know, written in stone. I haven't done any regression analysis, but this is what's going on. So there's no reason to panic, okay? The, the, the thing to do is to understand what you own why you own it, what your time frame is, what your risk tolerance is, and then understand uh, that volatility is your friend. As Rick Rule said, you know, I quote these people and they're all billionaires, you know, success leaves clues. And so um, there are going to be certain situations around energy, around uh, different minerals that we need that have been underinvested and the prices of the stocks are getting slammed. Okay. And so Yes, it's not fun watching some of this stuff go down, but you have to understand what your risk tolerance is, what, when you got in, when you bought that company, uh, what the prospects are, things of this nature. Um, if you are like, like people have asked me, I don't know what to do. It's people I have never even met. So I, I have a general statement. If you're laying in bed at night, staring at the ceiling fan in the dark, and your stomach is, is, is grumbling because you're nervous about your portfolio, you should sell. There's no reason to get sick over this, okay? I've said that many times. Um, other people that, this is, this is a really a psychological and emotional game. 
And this is where the real money will be made. This bear market will wash out eventually. At some point, the Federal Reserve will pause and then start cutting rates. And then the reliquification, li liquefying cycle, anyway, liquefact, whatever you want to say it, the new uh, liquidity cycle will start and things will, you know, bottom and come back. And on some of these companies that will drop maybe 30 to 50% from here, you will have the opportunity for 10 to 20 time returns. But you, what will happen to most people or quite a few people is they will not really understand some of this stuff. They won't be able to control their emotions. They don't really understand themselves. They're not introspective. They don't understand that vol volatility is part of this game and volatility is the key to getting the bargains that lead to the five, 10, 20 baggers. And they swear they'll, they'll lose a bunch of money and then swear off the market or they try to time or trade the market. Okay. Some people are good traders. They can do that. I'm not a trader. I have uh, build thesis or theses around various concepts that are going on in the world. And then I uh, bet my money accordingly. And then when I get a sell-off or a change, you know, for example, oil is going down, oil price is going down, okay? And people are like panicking. Well, you said the oil price is going to go up. You said that the, there wasn't enough oil. Inventories continue to go down. I don't know what's going on with the price. You know, most of the price is determined by futures traders, not physical markets. There's quite a few physical markets that are tight. Why do I know that? Because I, I'm watching tanker rates and I can see the inventories every week that people report, okay? And so I'm still bullish. People say, well, when are you going to become not bullish on oil? When I see a super multi-year investment increase in new production and reserves, when I see inventories bottom and start climbing again, which could happen, we could have a worldwide depression. Okay, that could happen. I don't, I don't think the, uh, I, I don't think that that's going to happen, but it could. There's all kinds of things going on. So, uh, same thing with uranium. You know, it's so volatile, and people are like. Well, you said that, you know, uranium's going to go up. You said uranium, nothing's changed in the thesis. Again, guys, I've bought some of these stocks for pennies. So if they go down 20, 30, 40%, I, I don't sweat it. I just buy more because nothing has changed. They're not building any new mines and yet they continue to put more reactors online. I mean, you just have to understand these things. So if you don't have, if you haven't thought these things through, then you're just basically chasing shiny objects. And that's where your despair comes from. That's where your anxiety comes from. Because quite frankly, quite a few people, most people in the markets really don't know what they're doing. I've said this before, and it pisses people off. It, it will be in the comment section because they take it as a personal attack because they're down. The, the research shows that most people that manage their own money buying individual stocks will greatly underperform the market. Most people that are investing should buy a very low expense S&P fund and just put the same amount of money in it for 40 years and they'll do fine. But they won't do that because everybody wants to, you know, here has visions of sugar plums. But then when this volatility comes, they get hit really hard and, you know, they don't understand what's happening and then they get sour and then they get aggravated and they get upset and then they, you know, we're on margin or they're trading options, all the things that they shouldn't do, they do. And then when it goes wrong for them, you know, when the tire is deflating, that's when all kinds of bad things start happening, right? And then they swear off the market, which is, you know, one of the biggest 
wealth creating machines available to the average person. It has to be used correctly, though. It's just like any other tool, like fire or dynamite or anything. These things are not, you know, inherently bad, but they have to be used. You know, gasoline is very, uh, you know, a great tool and product for, you know, transporting people around and giving you mobility. If you, you know, douse your car with it at the gas station and then on your cell phone, you have a static charge and, you know, blow it up. I mean, that can happen, right? So, um I guess my point is, you know, I just wanted to remind people of what's happening. Okay, and I'll get into a little bit more detail here. But I want one more quote from uh, Charlie Munger. What is the point of the market? It is to discover the weakness of human nature. If there are things that you don't understand, or if you have any kind of psychological or physiological weakness, there will be a situation in the market which exposes you. This is it, guys. You know, I think that more than half of the of your potential success or failure in these markets is based on your psychology and your emotional, you know, quotient, if you will, or how you handle the volatility, how you handle things. Um, guys, I'm 55. I've been doing this for a long time. For many, many years, I was emotional. Many, many years, I had FOMO. Many, many years, I didn't understand really what, what I was doing. It wasn't until I took the time to study successful investors throughout history, what the commonalities were around them, okay? And quite frankly, I'm, I've been hesitant to publish this article, but I'm going to. Most people, like I said before, are not suited emotionally or psychologically to manage their own money in the market. They should not do it. And it, it, it aggravates people when I say that because they feel like I'm attacking them. I'm just telling you because you don't have, most people don't have the, the, the ability to control their emotions, okay? When I say that Rick Rule, who's a billionaire, you know, we talked talk to the story about how Paladin went from, you know, 10 cents to one cent and he put a tremendous amount of his net worth into it. And that's how he became very wealthy. Would you have done that if a stock went down 90%? Or was it because he knew, he, had, he was so convicted and con convinced and convicted in his thesis and his understanding of the uranium market that he knew that there was the bargain of the century, okay, for him, okay? Most people can't do that. They, they cannot make themselves do that. They can't buy something at 10 cents, watch it go to one, and then, you know, go all in, or not all in, but quite go in significantly more. They, they, they just can't handle it emotionally. And that's what you have to do. I'm not saying right now go out and buy. What I'm saying is, is that you have to use the volatility, volatility as your friend, and most people can't do that. Okay, let's get into this a little bit deeper about what's going on. And I don't, I'm not here. Look, guys, I'm where a lot of you young guys were 30 years ago. I'm trying to teach you so you don't lose that time. In order to become, to accumulate large sums of wealth, you know, the stock market and real estate, things like this are very, very good tools but if you don't understand if you can't it's like fire fire is a tool if you can't harness it electricity is the same way if you can't harness and control it it can get away from you and it will damage you and then you swear it off and then you just you know i'm never investing in that again i'm never doing that again and uh you you know you you, you won't be able to you know accumulate wealth i hope that's helpful i don't know but uh that i, I i've said this Every time we have these big pullbacks, every time we have these things happen in the market, I have to come back to the same thing that 
you know, I don't, I'm not upset. I mean, I, I listen to some of these Twitter spaces and you've got some famous people on there and it's always these big pendulum swings, right? So now after these, you know, the Fed's never going to stop raising rates. They're going to destroy the economy. It's like an implosion and get out. And so now we see record amount of put buying and all these extremes in the market. So it's probably setting up for a, a, another bear market rally, which you've already seen like four or five. So, you know, even people that are seasoned, even people that have been around get subject to these things, okay? Understand what you're speculating or investing in. Understand it as best you can. 360 wrap around it. Not just listening to me or somebody else on the internet, but if you're going to get involved, like in the uranium market, for example, then you should understand the whole thing, everything about it. And that will give you conviction. That will give you the understanding you need to be convicted to say, I'm not worried about this. I know that over the long term, I'm going to make a tremendous amount of money because this is going to happen. You're skating to where the puck will be. But that takes a tremendous amount of emotional control because it's hard, right? You know, what happens, like I've said this before, happens to many people is, uh, especially subscribers that come onto the newsletter, they'll buy and then the stock will go down 30 or 50% and then they I get hate mail or they want their, they want they don't want to resubscribe. What, what's changed? Did you not understand the thesis? All that happened was you got a better bargain, but this is not how most people look at it because they don't really understand. They haven't taken the time. They don't have the conviction. I can't give you conviction. Other gurus or whatever you want to call them, people on the internet, influencers, whatever, they can't give you conviction. They can give you a basic understanding of a story. They can say, oh, that's interesting. I'll do further research. But you have to do the work. You have to get, convi you have to get that conviction. And that conviction comes through work and understanding and uh, you know, circle of competence, if you will. Basically, really understanding you know, what's going on with this particular industry, company, whatever, so that when the volatility does hit, you look at it as an opportunity, not as you know, the end of the world. So what's happening? I mean, look what the Fed's doing, okay? They're, they're, they're going crazy with these interest rate increases. You see on previous rate raising cycles, they do it incrementally because they didn't want to hurt the economy. They didn't want to have financial markets get upset and you know have these big swings in volatility because it, people are voters. But the main thing now is, is this inflation, right? We have an election coming up. Um, it's the number, if you look at the polling, that's one of the number one things that's on people's minds. And so, you know, uh, as I've said before, I don't agree with many people that, you know, the Fed knows what it's doing and it's steering us to a soft land. I mean, basically, I've said this before, they basically, you know, are running around a house that's full of flies with a 10 pound sledgehammer trying to kill flies. That's what these rating rate cycles are, right? So they can't, you know, you're getting a lack of investment in various commodities and things like that, shortages, which is all getting alleviated now. They can't create new oil. They can't create more copper. They can't, you know, create more food. They can't alleviate the bottlenecks in shipping around the world. They can't control the situation with Russia and Ukraine uh, and the repercussions from that. All they can do, so that's all supply side situations. They can't do anything with that. So all they can do is crush demand. And that's what they're trying to do to lower inflation. Now, I've pointed out many times that the inflation rate is already peaked. It's going to be coming down, okay? And uh, But the problem is, is that 
the major components of the inflation rate are, for example, um, owner's equivalent rent and things like this, which are based on real estate prices, which are lagging indicators. Okay. And so when you look at, you know, you're looking basically, it'd be like trying to drive on the freeway by looking in your rear view mirror and side mirrors only. That's how the Fed does this. They're looking at what's happened in the past. The data that they're getting is in the past and not looking at the future. If you look at leading economic indicators, the economy is in a recession and it's going, the recession is getting deeper. So that's going to cause, you're already seeing layoffs. You're already seeing um, people announcing, uh, you know, weak, look what happened with Federal Express the other day, right? Down 20% because they said their business is basically, you know, off tremendously. And so these things will conspire to lower demand and demand gets lowered, uh, prices come down, okay? But this is all looking in the back. I mean, they've already done enough rate raise, rate increases now. I mean, you saw Jeremy Siegel the other day. He was a professor, I think, at, uh, I can't remember, on one of the East Coast universities and he runs uh, money. I think he's got a hedge fund too. I mean, he was coming unglued on CNBC the other day. And so I think, what you need to do, what I'm doing is just sit, raise cash, understand what you own, raise cash and just wait. Okay. At some point, the, the, they're going to pause. They're going to say, that's enough. We've done enough. They're going to pause. Okay. And then we'll eventually go into another, you know, as we've done every single other time. And this only goes back to 2000, but you see, we go through these cycles over and over and over again. Okay. This will pass. Is it going to be six months? I don't know. Is it going to be a year? I don't know. But already, you know, the bond market's already showing you uh, that, you know, wh where this is heading. Maybe first quarter, second quarter, first half of 2023, we'll see this thing pause. And so there's no reason to go in and chase, chase you know, falling safes right now. Just wait. Be patient. The news is going to get bad. There's a lot of pessimism. There's a lot of negativity. And uh, you don't have to do anything. You can just wait. It's the you wait for the fat pitch and it's going to come. So um, I think that um, I'm putting together a list of junior gold stocks that are out right now drilling and proving up new reserves. And you know what? They make announcements and the, the stocks go down because liquidity is shrinking. No one cares. There's crypto miners out there that can mine cryptocurrencies for or Bitcoin for five six thousand dollars of bitcoin okay and still bitcoin still at what nineteen thousand these things are down 95 percent so you just make lists of this stuff and these things are going to fly when this when the tire goes from being the tire being liquidity going from deflating when they go through another inflation cycle okay these things fly risk assets will fly so you don't have to do anything but wait right now. You don't have to panic. You don't have to get on Twitter spaces and listen to all the gurus, you know, swing back and forth. You need to understand what you own, what you want to own, and, and, and how this will work, okay? Because there will be tremendous uh, bargain basement situations. I mean, I, is there any reason why gold couldn't drop to 1400 No, it could. It could go lower. I don't know. I'm not a fortune teller. But when liquidity is shrinking... All these markets come in. That's just what you're seeing. It's it's not like well, you see a lot of people making excuses. Well, this you know doesn't change the long term fact that we're in an energy crisis. It's just being overwhelmed now because liquidity is being sucked out of the market. Look look how steep this is. This is just so out of character. 
this is why you're going to have this big, you know, we're going to have a big smash in the economy because this is what's going on. And so what's this leading to? I mean, well, let's go to the next chart. So we also have this uh, quantitative tightening. This is the Fed, Federal Reserve's um, balance sheet, if you will. And you recall that uh, this is never going to go down. This is never going to come back to here. It's just impossible. Um, this was the COOF, you know, so they expanded their balance sheet. That's why you had the big asset bubbles that we had. A lot of people confuse that for being smart, and it wasn't. It was just liquidity going back to that Stanley Druckenmiller situation. So this is starting to roll over. So it's not like they're out selling the bonds back in the market. They're just letting the stuff roll off. So what's that mean? So the, the securities that they bought have maturities, right? I don't know what they were buying. I don't know the, the constituents of the various Fed's portfolio, but suggest that across the curve, they've bought securities, and as they mature, they just roll off and they don't buy anymore. And then you see this is how uh, this shrinks. So that lowers liquidity also. Why? Because how did, how did the Federal Reserve buy these assets to begin with? They create money out of thin air. These are keystrokes on a computer. There's no real wealth behind this. And so that's why um, when liquidity shrinks, you know everything that was going up now reverses and goes down. So this is going to exacerbate the situation. And what's this leading to? Well, the U.S. dollar is surging higher because there's a shortage of dollars around the world, right? Um, if you're contracting the amount of dollars, contracting liquidity, dollars become more scarce. That's why you see even like with the Indian economy doing well, the rupee is you know falling massively because there's a shortage of dollars. And so the dollar, this is good if you're holding dollars, you know, hold cash. You can get like, you know, pretty decent returns just sitting in, um, you know, short-term one and two-year treasuries. Why not just sit there and collect that? Collect that. Your dollars are appreciating against emerging markets, against commodities, and then you're going to be in the catbird seat when the bottom comes, okay? And so what's happening here, in addition is, not only are you getting the effects of the tightening liquidity, you're also getting the effects of the United States still perceived, the US dollar still perceived as a reserve currency around the world. And don't get, don't at me in the comments. Yes, I understand that the, the, the you know, the US dollar, you know, is going to, eventually gonna go down, but you know, these things take time. There's a lot of ruin in a country, okay? It's not gonna happen in the next six months. Yes, over time, the unfunded liabilities that we have in Social Security and Medicare, all these things, the fact that the country has all these underlying rotten problems, I get that, okay? But it takes a lot of time because there's a lot of inertia uh, here, and it's going to take a lot more time before there's, th th there's no viable uh, uh, alternative. And don't at me about gold and Bitcoin because that's not going to happen. So... You know, you're also seeing because rates are so high here relative to the rest of the world, you're seeing in, people, you know, inflows into the um, United the U.S. dollar, people buying treasuries. I mean, flight capital coming from Europe and other places uh, because of what's going on there. And so you look at like the dollar index. I didn't put this is like the dollar index. It's surging now. It's breaking out. It's starting to go parabolic. It's not, a, you know, I don't know how high it could go. 113, I think, is where it's at now. Could it go to 120, 150? Who knows? I don't know. Um, what I do know is, is that if they continue raising rates, the dollar will continue going up and things are already starting to break around the world. Okay. And uh, I'm going to show you some examples of that. And so I think that, you know,
you can listen to different people's theories about why they're doing this. I, I just think that, you know, they're panicking because they see the inflation. It's a number one political f- situation. There's an election coming up. And so they're going hog wild. I mean, they kept rates. I mean, they don't, do you really think these people know what they're doing? They, 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 they said last year that inflation was transitory. That was to excuse all of their flagrant behavior of inflating all these asset bubbles. Now they're telling you that now Jerome Powell's telling you that, that he's the new Paul Volcker and he's going to keep raising rates. He's going to keep raising rates right into a severe, severe recession. And so see how fast things turn around. My experience is these people are never right. Okay, they're always looking in the rearview mirror. Remember, they're driving a car down the highway by looking in the rearview mirror and the side mirrors. They're looking at data that is, you know, in the past. They're not looking forward. And so here is uh, UK bonds. Okay, and so I have to explain this again because you see the price of the bonds is coming down. That's because rates are going starting to you know go up in, in the uk and you see like because the british pound now is declining against the um the uh us dollar and so this these are moves these are this goes back to 2004 you see the moves in the uh over time as you know rates came down in the uk uh, over time the uh their bonds were, were climbing this is like you know 18 years of movement and you see the moves that you see. Look at how this thing's just coming unglued in 2022. This is this is just like a crash. This is what I call about it. This is the smash that I'm talking about, okay? And it's because of the currency differentials. It's because of the flagrant uh, money printing in the UK, interest rate differentials between the UK and the US, uh, the dollar versus the pound. And this is what you're seeing. These moves are crash type moves, okay? And they're not sustainable. At some point, things are gonna start, things are starting to break. And this is just an example. You don't see moves like this in bonds. Yes, you can see these, you know, you know, inter-year moves that move kind of like this, but this is not, you know, this is, this is these are huge moves that aren't typical. Um, this is a ETF, it's a emerging markets ETF. Um, I wanted to show this, whoops, uh, and you see, this is another thing that's happening as the dollar increases, right? Emerging markets are starting to implode. Why? Well, let's say you're in an emerging market um, and you want to you know, build something like a dam or something. You're not going to borrow the money like in the, if you're in like Indonesia, in Indonesian rupees, or, or I think that's what the currency is there. I can't remember what the currency is, but the Indonesian currency, because you're just not going to be able to. So you're going to borrow in dollars, right? And uh, you have to pay back in dollars. And so what happens is, as the dollar increases in value, your interest rate, your burden, your payback burden goes up, right? You have to go get more dollars uh, because uh, your currency is falling against the dollar your burden, debt burden increases. And what happens is across the entire economy of these emerging markets, who the companies, the governments, they have borrowed all these dollars uh, and gone into debt, which, you know, debt isn't necessarily a bad thing as long as it's done in moderation and uh, cash flows can support it. But that's what happens, right? Commodity prices go down, uh, business goes down, your ability to generate cash flow goes down. And that's, you're getting hit on that side, your, your cash generation is going down, and then your 
burdens to pay back are going up because your ability to get dollars uh, or have to pay more uh, for the dollars that you need. So this is what you see. But this creates opportunities, right? Eventually, this is going to turn. This is one of the assets that will eventually turn once uh, the dollar reverses, which it will once the next uh, liquidity cycle starts. When that happens, I don't know. But this is some of the intermarket relationships that many people don't understand. And so they say, well, I don't understand why we're, you know, we had the emerging market crisis and I think it was 1997. I mean, I kind of didn't really understand what was going on then. I understand it now in, in, in retrospect. And, but I didn't know at the time, it was a tremendous buying opportunity. Did, it was when they had the tiger cubs, you know, like Thailand, uh, Malaysia, um, places like that, that were just then coming into their economic uh, bloom, if you will. And then we had this currency crisis and those things were down massively, you know, and did they drive and blow away? No, that was a buying opportunity. And the same thing will happen here, but we have to wait for the dollar to um, uh, turn and that will happen. That's going to be a reflection of, like I said, liquidity and interest rates. So these will be tremendous values at some point. I mean, the countries are not going to dry up and blow away. And so I, this chart's very small, but it has like all these different events that were bad things that happened in the market. Let me see if I can read some of them. I can't see it. I wish I could blow this up, but um, I'll try to put it on the website. I'll put it on the website, this chart, and you can read it. And so if you go back and look at all of these end of the world scenarios, all these times throughout the history, this goes back to like, you know, I think this chart goes back to the 1900, I think. And it lists all of these, you know, huge or, or, or bad news that caused the markets to decline. And you'll note that in retrospect, they're just blips on a chart now over time. Okay. And like I said, if you see from 1900 to now, the chart goes from the lower left to the upper right. Why? Because the diet, uh, dynamic nature of the United States economy, which I won't get into the argument if that's changing now and if that's still going to be in place, but suffice to say that, you know, um, we always came back and things, you know, better products, more efficiency, the economy grows, blah, blah, blah. So every one of these things now are just historical footnotes, but at the time were, you know, can you imagine if they had Twitter back then during the Great Depression? I mean, this was a buying opportunity. Read, you know, Sir John Templeton, great investor, uh, how he made his money by buying, I think, I forget the exact story, took a certain amount of money uh, and bought equals amounts of every stock on the New York Stock Exchange trading like under $5 or a dollar, something like this. And of course, you know, you know, how many years later, he cashed out for a huge sum. So it's the same thing that happened, you know, in Cyprus, that was an opportunity. These other you know, that I've talked about these other opportunities, you know, when these economies get blasted, um, they have a tendency to come back. So I guess that kind of goes into, if you have a longer term perspective and you understand that if you read through this, you'd be like, man, that was a big deal back then. But now it's just like a little blip on a chart over the, in, in, in the scheme of the, of the big picture. But then some people will retort, they'll say, well, John, um, in the end, we're all dead. We don't live, we're not here forever. So, you know, we have to, you know, and I, I, I say to that, that if you start when you're young, then you can always recover from these things. If you're buying at all these little dips, 
if you're that's when you're entering the market if you're if you're reloading then then and you have a long-term perspective then you will do well uh, there are periods like this period that was in this late 60s and 70s when you know it was side to side but there were individual companies in there that uh you know had the opportunity to take advantage so i think time is your friend but really understanding that you know what we perceive in the near term because of our recency bias and that's why everybody's so scared about like what the oil price is dropping they're looking back to recency bias of what happened when oil went negative you know is that going to happen again i doubt it but you know I look at things in three, five, 10 year time frames. That's what suited me. And, uh, you know, I think that if you do that and you understand that what's the current news today or the current, you know, um, problem du jour really in three, five or 10 years, you probably won't remember. And this chart shows you that. And along with all of these, this is a lot of events. And like I said, taken individually, they were a big deal at that particular time, but in the scheme of things, they weren't. So, and the point is that points of, of maximum pessimism is when you make your money. You make your money by how much you pay for security. If you pay cheap, cheaply for securities, that's how you make your money. That's when you lock in your return. I want to point this out because you see the public debt. It's never going to go down from here on out. Um, it's going up. But what you will note is U.S. public debt as a share of GDP is actually going down. Now, why is that? Um, that's because uh, with this inflation, you know, the value of the debt goes down, right? So um, I just wanted to point this out because I don't think a lot of people pay attention to this. Uh, this is why I think that you won't see 2% inflation. Uh, I think that... Um, I think the Fed will be fine. I think a lot of people will be fine with an inflation rate of three to 4%. That'll be the new normal. And I think you'll see that sooner rather than later, unless they crash the economy into a depression, then you could you know, see actual deflation. But uh, that's really not the historical narrative. The historical narrative is they raise rates so they break something and then they reverse course and reliquify. So uh, if you understand those cycles and, and, and play them to your advantage, you, you can uh, make a tremendous amount of money. But this is interesting that as the debt goes up, the debt as a percentage share of GDP goes down, which is, um, I'm not saying it's a, a known policy, but that's something that uh, people smarter than me talk about, like Luke Groman and things like that. But this debt will never go down over time. It's going to increase over time, but it's quite possible that the debt could go down as a share of GDP, just because as you inflate, the GDP increases, uh, nominally, but not in real terms, and then the debt goes away. You know, if you locked in a mortgage on your house before rates went up and you were at, you know, people were under 3%, I have one, uh, my mortgage is like 3%. I mean, inflation is eating away your debt, okay? You're, you're, and people don't understand these concepts. And so there'll be a tremendous opportunity in real estate too. I already go to a hobby that I have is just looking around here where I live in Houston, particular bedroom community I live in where there's a lot of new construction and already looking on Zillow and I they have a little tab on there you can click uh, I think it's on realtor.com one of them of price decreases and I go to the you know open houses and I you know right now I have an apartment but I'm happy to do a lease option at a certain price you know when when the blood really starts flowing and you know get back into uh, a decent house and then live in it for a year and, and flip it once the we, we 
reliquify. So the housing shortage in the U.S. didn't go away. It's just that people have been priced out because of the rates. And I think that, uh, like I said, this is like everything else. It's a, it's a manifestation of the liquidity. So link to this article, we've been talking about copper quite a bit. You know, I went to the solar show uh, expo out in Anaheim last week. And it was pretty good. There was like 30,000 people there. You know, the Inflation Reduction Act went through. So the money's going to flow now into uh, whether, you know, kind of the heads, heads we win, tails we win more. But copper is the basis of all of this, right? This climate change agenda, green agenda, whatever you might think about it, it's really not relevant for those purposes. You know, you can go to the polls and vote for your particular politician. It's so entrenched now in the lobbying. It's so huge now, this industry. It's kind of its own golem. It's not going to be put back into the cave and the stone's not going to be rolled in front of it to keep it, you know, in there. It's out. The cat is out of the bag, so to speak. And so this whole thing is predicated, though, on copper. And again, we've been talking about it. I think there's going to be a tremendous opportunity this decade uh, because, quite frankly, as I've said before, as other people have said, you know, we've put the S&P uh, paper on it up. We've talked about, you know, different commentators, Mark Mills, other folks um, talking about uh, Robert Friedland, who's made billions investing in copper, whether it was in Oyu Togoi in Mongolia. Now he's Ivanhoe Mines in the Congo. Um, I mean, we don't have enough copper. So this is a good article. I think it was a Bloomberg article, but it showed up on Yahoo. I'll put a link to it. Just want to touch on a couple of points here. So the price of copper has fallen by nearly a third since March. Investors are selling on fears that a global recession will stunt demand for a metal that's synonymous with growth and expansion. That's correct. Uh, the liquidity, the economic um, contraction that we're probably going to see is going to, in the short term, um, cause the copper price to come down. It's not really come down as much as I thought it would, though, but uh, it's still come down quite a bit. You know, we got out of our copper stocks, base metal stocks pretty much um, earlier this year, uh, but we're watching it, right? There's going to be tremendous bargains there. Uh, and so that is what's happening. But goes on the article, you wouldn't know it from looking at the market today, but some of the largest miners and metals traders are warning that in just a couple of years' time, a massive shortfall will emerge for the world's most critical metal, one that could itself hold back global growth, stoke inflation by raising manufacturing costs, and throw global climate change goals off course. Yeah, um, I just want to repeat, I think I put it up last week, a um, quote by Robert Friedland. I think he gave it in his speech. He's, he's pretty adept at making these provocative um, statements throughout his career, but this one is actually, you know, based in fact. I think the quote was something to the, to the fact of since the, you know, 10,000 years that man's been on earth, we've mined like 700 million tons of copper. And we need to do that same amount of mining of copper in the next 20 years. And as I've pointed out many, many times recently and probably going back over a year, we just don't have that copper stock found. It's not ready. It's not on deck ready to go, okay? What we're seeing is depletion in mines. What we're seeing is lack of funding for new exploration. What we're seeing is resource nationalism. We're seeing all these um, impediments to higher copper mining growth, right? Copper supply. And so when supply is, again, here we go, if supply is stunted, 
if supply is held back, if supply is not there and demand continues to increase, we're going to see price increases. I go back to saying what um, Goring and Rosenzweig have said that they think copper could see $10, above $10 a pound this decade. I think that's very reasonable because that was fascinating to me at the solar show is there's so much, so much, every manufacturer was there, every EPC contractor, every lawyer firm, every bank, everybody was there. The money was flowing, dinners, blah, blah, blah. So many people packed in there and it's all relying on copper. You open up the little combiner boxes or look at the displays for the inverters. It's all copper, 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 the wiring, Okay, and it's just a tremendous amount of copper, not to mention the fact that just the continue, continued demand from the emerging markets as these huge populations in Asia go through their S-curve of resource demand. As, of course, we've talked about before, as countries become wealthier, they want, you know, air conditioners in, in uh, India, the more power production that's needed for the data centers because they want to have, you know, they want to have an iPhone too with all the whiz bang apps and all the server farms, all that stuff is, you know, predicated on copper. You know, the green revolution is all predicated on increased copper growth. So supply. So this is going to be, uh, you know, I think something that's going to smack another wall we're going to run into. But if you understand what's getting ready to happen, over the next three to five years, not in three to five months, it's going to be over the next three to five years. And, you know, so you just wait, you identify the good copper miners, Tech, Rio Tinto, BHP, all these companies are smaller ones, right? Lundin, you know, Ivanhoe, uh, you maybe even want to look at some of the juniors that are exploring that have decent properties that they're exploring. Okay, this is what you should be making your shopping list. You know, this is your Excel spreadsheet. This is the work that you have to do. And then when prices, you know, bottom out, which they will eventually, then you move in. If you think, if you agree that this is what's going to happen. Going on with the article, commodities experts have been warning of a potential copper crunch for months, if not years. And the latest market downturn st stands to exacerbate future supply problems by offering a false sense of security, choking off cash flow and chilling investments. Current worst case projections from S&P Global show 2035 shortfall will be equivalent to about 20% of convention or consumption, sorry. We, the last peak that we had before this uh, downturn we've had recently uh, was like 450 a pound. And that was just because that was, you know, in response to a 2% shortfall in copper supply. If you have a 20% supply um, shortfall, I mean, the sky's the limit, okay? Because commodities, as you know, are priced at the margin. A one or 2% uh, supply deficit can cause a tremendous run-up in price. And conversely, a one to 2%, a slight surplus can cause a big uh, decrease in price. So that's what you need to understand. You need to understand that we haven't made the investment. This is across the resource bases, uh, across all resources, energy in particular. And so this is just another example. And I'm going to keep talking about this. Does that mean on Monday run out and buy tech and buy, you know, Ivanhoe? No, it doesn't mean that. What it means is put your spreadsheets together, put your list together, understand who has good projects and good places, people that have done this before, and then understand, you know, what that means uh, once these things eventually bottom, okay? There's no reason to panic and go out there 
next week and, and, and shoot your wad. Put your list together, get ready, uh, because the worm will turn eventually. And so here we go again. Here's the uh, industrial metal demand seen growing across the globe. You know, we're in this area here. You know, here's China. Here's, you know, Vietnam. This is um, uh, world-refined copper consumption per thousand people. You see, these are all countries that are India, Mexico, Vietnam. These are all emerging markets. You see, like, what's happening in India. You see what's happening. I mean, they have 1.4 billion people and you see where their copper consumption is, you know, it's just, you know, we're not even, they're not even to where the rest of the world is um, on average, they are below that. And then you see places like, you know, Mexico, uh, Vietnam's went crazy. China's kind of leveling out now, but you know, you can see where most of these countries are going to end up at, you know, 15, um, uh, tons per, uh, thousand people so uh um but this is you know way down the line these are all forecasts of course but you know we're, we're we're here now you know this is where we're at now and this is the forecast so you can see what's getting ready to happen but it's going to be punctuated like i said before it will be punctuated with times where we get into recessions and then the price pulls back and those are your buying opportunities right So this was kind of depressing, you know, continues in Europe. I uh, haven't, you know, we just point out these vignettes. You have this Dole 3, it's a 1,000 megawatt nuclear power plants in Belgium. It supplies 10% of all Belgian electricity. They're going to shut it. I guess they shut it the other day for no good reason in the middle of an energy and climate crisis, a perfect plant with a minute footprint. I didn't show the picture. It's sitting on like a river. There's nothing around it green, you know, pasture land. And I did see a tweet with a video showing the Belgian, I think she's the energy minister, economic minister, I don't know, one of these ministers, incompetence that shouldn't even be in there. But anyways, and the reason why, I mean, it's again, the green parties are in here, they made these commitments to shut the nuclear power plants. You know why it's being shut, this one in Belgium? Because then it won't be uh, available to create nuclear weapons. Yes, you can create nuclear weapons from the waste products from nuclear fission, or you can choose not to. And so that's the excuse they use. As they sit there, as industry is being threatened in Europe to, you know, you're going through a process now um, of deindustrialization in Europe. Okay, and uh, facilitated by the fact that uh, energy uh, inputs are declining. Whether it's by stupidity or choice, I'm not going to speculate at this point. Some people will say that, you know, Klaus Schwab and his merry band of elves is deindustrializing Western Europe so they can financialize the economy and control everybody and blah, blah, blah. That's, I don't, I guess anything's possible. I don't have enough knowledge of that. I just, don't attribute to malfeasance that which can be described by stupidity. These people are not very bright. If you listen to them, I'm shocked, uh, you know, and to think that, you know, so this was the grand plan to do it like this, to have this war with Russia. And they knew that they weren't going to, you know, that was going to be a stalemate. And that was going to give them the opportunity to have these high energy prices and shut down all these nuclear power plants and cause all this pain and suffering. And somehow they're going to get control of everything on this when government after government's being thrown out on their butt. You're going to have an election tomorrow in Italy, the right brothers of Italy and the right wings 
let's put this right of center is going to come into power. Eurosceptics are going to be part of that government. That doesn't mean they're going to leave the the EU, but it's going to be, you know, what's going to happen here, folks, I think, is that you look at Poland, you look at Hungary, you look at Slovakia, Romania, Bulgaria. That's where the rifts are going to start first. People are going to start people are going to start bolting and make cutting their own deals to keep their own populations uh, supplied with energy. And uh, that's what I predict is going to happen. And you're going to see the, now the political winds. This is another government that's changing now. OK, um, we've went down the list, right? Pro-EU governments are, you know, Bulgaria have disappeared, Estonia, I think, or one of those, one of the, Lithu it wasn't Lithuania, it was Estonia, I think. Um, and, you know, Hungary, you know, is now being attacked by the European Union. I'm getting ready to show you another slide here of Ursula van der Leyen, what she said about the upcoming uh, Italian elections. But anyways, uh, I want to uh, continue on with this. Um, India chooses energy security. India to expand coal power capacity in the name of energy security. We talked about this even before this whole situation happened in Ukraine. Before the sanctions, we were already heading for an energy crisis. And the whole basis of the future was going to be, at least in the political realm, was going to be energy security. Um, and that is only going to be attained. You know, I've said this before. And I'm going to give you a link here for a uh, book that you can get uh, that's been helpful for me to fully understand, excuse me, to fully understand uh, how energy uh, works and how it uh, is so instrumental to our advanced societies. And so this goes back to, this is like, you know, these emerging countries, markets, whatever you want to call them, they're going to choose energy security. They have to respond to their populations, the growth that is coming, and you have to have energy inputs. You cannot have growth. You cannot have modernization. You cannot have civilization without increasing levels of energy inputs into a system, into the economy. Consider the economy in the US or Germany or India or any country or the world itself requires energy inputs, okay, to do all these things, to do work. And a lot of people just do not understand this. And you're not going to do that with um, power sources that are intermittent or power sources that are not dense. It's just that simple. And if you don't understand that, then you're just going to be misguided in your views and in your investments. It's funny because I didn't put this up here, but there was a, I guess there was a hearing in Congress and this Rashida Tlaib person from Michigan, congresswoman, that's a progressive, very, very nasty woman. I really do not care for her. She just even looks nasty, acts nasty. She had all the big bankers sitting there. I guess they were televised over Zoom. Anyways, she was going to go down the line and, and, and say that, are you going to commit to, not, to ESG goals of not making any more loans to fossil fuel? Um, you know, companies to expand uh, fossil fuel production or whatever, what have you. And the first person they started with was Jamie Dimon at JP Morgan. Now, I'm not a JP Morgan, Jamie Dimon fan. I don't like the big banks. I, that's a whole nother series of videos, but I did like this comment. He said, no, I'm not committing to that. That would, he, this is his exact quote. That would be hell for America. That's what he said. So he's right. He's right. 
And so she came unglued, you know, it was, it was, I found it amusing. So if you can find that clip, I think you'll find it amusing. Maybe I'll try to find it on YouTube and uh, put it in the show notes, but it's, it's about energy security, right? You have to have these constant energy inputs. And if you're going to increase the, um, uh, livelihoods and increase the uh, abundance, if you're going to increase the uh, standards of living for people, it requires increased energy inputs. It's just that simple, folks. I mean, uh, you know, there's a, uh, you just need to really understand this. If you don't understand it, then you're really going to miss the mark uh, in your own life and investing. This is very important. And most people just do not understand this. So here's a quote from the Aramco CEO, Saudi Aramco, quote, when you shame oil and gas investors, dismantle oil and coal-fired power plants, fail to diversify energy supplies, oppose LNG receiving terminals, and reject nuclear power, your transition plan had better be right. Well, this is what's happened in Europe, right? And now it's been exacerbated by the um, choices that were made to embargo their largest energy supplier. And now you see what's happening. Okay, you see the the inflation, you see the deindustrialization, you're going to see the job losses and the economic decline that's going to happen in Europe. And this is exactly right. Now, people again would say, well, what do you expect the CEO of Saudi Aramco to say? He's a polluter. He's a bad man, bad, bad oil man. He just wants to sell more, more oil and gas. Well, you can say what you want, but oil and gas and coal uh, have been the instruments for the civilization that we enjoy now. And yet most people want to demonize it because they don't understand it. And so here's another, uh, not quote, but this is what he, uh, Saudi Aramco uh, says, global oil buffers may vanish when demand recovers. You know, if you look at uh, some analysts I was looking at, we could be, we're already back to like a hundred million barrels a day of demand. Um, projections, OPEC projections are for like 101 point something next year, you know, and then over the next couple of few years, you get to like 105 million barrels and we just do not have the investment for, to support that demand. And so that's why I, I, I think that, you know, why we're in a energy uh, bull market, even though prices are down in the short term, I think that uh, overall, you know, what's interesting, I want to talk about this a little bit because people are like, well, I'm selling out my energy stocks. You, everybody should do what they think is best for them. I, I'm not a trader. I don't do anything. But if you look at the companies that were mostly invested in the portfolio, there quite a few of them are Canadian-based. Canadian dollars down against the U.S. dollar. So they're getting this oil and selling it for U.S. dollars. Their costs are in Canadian dollars. So their margins are quite a bit higher just based on that. Same thing on some of these other overseas markets, like one of the companies we have is uh, based in Peru, same thing. They're selling their oil for Brent prices, US dollars, and they're paying you know whatever the wages are in the Peruvian currency and their suppliers and things like that. Now, I'm sure that there's probably, I don't know the exact terms of every MSA and contract that this company has, but what I'm trying to tell you is, is that, and if you, um, that you can't just look at the oil price. You have to look at, you know, what's the situation for each company? What's its cost basis for each barrel of oil or MCF of gas. You have to look at, uh, is production going to go up? Uh, it's easy for them to raise production. Um, you have to look at the balance sheet, right? Because what I have found that a lot of people are missing on these uh, companies is, is that 
if you look at some of their discussions, because they've lowered their debt so much, there's been such a tsunami of cash into these companies just because of where the energy prices have been and they haven't went nuts doing mergers and acquisitions or trying to just drill baby drill, the cash has accumulated. So the first thing that many of them did was pay down their debt. Many of these companies were really overwhelmed with debt. Uh, a lot of people almost went bankrupt or did go bankrupt during the, uh, uh, co uh, the pandemic. And so now they've taken the opportunity when they've had this windfall of cash to pay down their debt. So they're in a better position if oil goes to 70, 60 or 50, okay? Because they don't, they, they can generate enough cash flow now to deal with the, their current debt situation or in many cases have paid off their debt and will still be generating cash and returning that to shareholders. So if the share price is down, they're buying shares back at you know, a lower price. Now, could oil go to 30 or $40 a barrel? I guess anything's possible. I don't know. Um, but I think that the world's short of molecules. I've said this before. And this is what uh, Aramco is saying too. Energy crisis will be severe and prolonged, says CEO Nasser. Saudis say world must recognize need for more oil investments. It's just not happening, folks. And if you're in a situation where a lot of people are talking about, if you're sitting in the boardroom or sitting in the management meetings, of, of the oil companies, again, nobody's going to be like, yeah, man, uh, the oil prices come down from 120 or 130 down to, you know, high 80s or whatever. Let's go out and start drilling. It's just not going to happen. And so, again, maintenance capital, cut costs, um, just keep things running at an even keel, make some small investments here and there that you can turn over pretty quick and uh, generate cash, continue with the plan of paying down debt and returning capital to shareholders. And so, uh, that's, you know, and, and eventually the worm turns and again, you know, I, I've said this before, before the next several years is over, we're going to have record oil prices. I think that at some point, uh, you know, we will see oil over $200 a barrel and, uh, we're going to see a tremendous boom. I think now it's hard to see this right now, but, uh, this is pretty typical. And so, uh, what we've seen in previous cycles. So I think, you know, barring a worldwide depression that they can't get out of um, or some kind of world war or something like that, then um, I think that, you know, the bias is going to be to a higher oil price over the longer term. So uh, I think there's, this is a video I saw, I guess Mike Bloomberg is out there now. Um, I put on here Beyond Meat 2.0. It's like petrochemicals used to produce plastic products are a major threat to public health and the environment. With the launch of Beyond Petrochemicals, we're putting people over pollution and partnering with communities to block 120 plus planned new petrochemical facilities. And so this little video is like a minute 44. And of course, plastics are bad. Industry's bad. Cancer rates are up. I mean, no real evidence is given. It's just a lot of rhetoric and platitudes. And so I'd like to see what the real evidence is, because when I, you know, I worked in the power industry burning, you know, coal and natural gas um, and the regulations that we had to um, adhere to were, I mean, we had to constantly upgrade our analysis ability, our analyzers to measure the constituents that were coming out of our stack after combustion of whatever fuel we were using. And we had strict you know, inspections and reports we had to put into the various states and the federal government. And I can tell you that, you know, it's not like, you know, Victorian England, where we're just shoveling coal into a boiler and all this soot's landing everywhere. It's not really like that. 
And so all of these companies are subjected to that. I mean, you see in the video, it's funny because they like have a drone going over some facilities. And it's like, again, if you really don't know what you're looking at, you would say, man, that's a lot of smoke coming off. There. That's a lot of emissions. Well, it's basically cooling towers from the process. So you're getting water, you know, is being evaporated. You know, you send your uh, cooling water from the process. It's being sent to a cooling tower and you're seeing the evaporation of the water and then people look at that and go oh my gosh that's just terrible you know that's not like you know if we were at the refinery and we had a unit that um had an upset and they had to send the product to to a flare stack that's the last thing the refinery wanted to do was flare because there was tremendous regulation against that and tremendous cost fines and things for flaring directly to the air so um again again it's half truths it's rhetoric it's platitudes to advance an agenda. So all that will happen is that you will deindustrialize. This main thing was around the Gulf Coast of Texas and Louisiana. All you're going to do is try to deindustrialize the West, but all the stuff just moves to India, China, and these other places, and then you import the stuff to here. So what what is the net benefit to the planet? I mean, this is just you know, I don't know. It's just a bunch of billionaire people that think they're smarter than they really are, and as is everything in life, things are a trade-off. If you want to have, um, yes, okay, people should, you know, use uh, like those metal or glass bottles to put their drinking water in that you see, you can fill them up and stuff, okay? That's probably better than plastic, okay? I get it. Uh, but, you know, I see all these masks laying around in parking lots. Now, that's like the new plastic waste, right? You see these things everywhere, these dirty masks. People just take them off and throw them down. These surgical masks, they're all over the place. It's horrible. And so it's like, you know, what's the real deal? I mean, what's funny is if, you're, if you watch these things and you look in the background of where the person is, or if you just look at the person themselves, the one guy's like a minister or something. He's wearing a ball cap and some glasses with plastic frames. The ball cap is made from, you know, rayon or nylon or some kind of derivative uh, of some type of ethyl, you know, plastics or something like that. These people are just really tone deaf. You know, the clothes that they're wearing, all this stuff are derivatives of, you know, chemical and petrochemical manufacturing, but they don't understand it, don't care because, you know, it's whatever, they have some other agenda. And so again, in, in a minute 44, you really can't, you know, put out real information that can be checked and then you can have a real discussion and argument and a balance. Like I said, there's trade-offs. Um, uh, that's all life is, is trade-offs, you know, and uh, people don't understand that. There's no heaven on earth. It's a series of trade-offs. So again, energy density is the key to civilization. That's why I put this here. So how long, I like to go through these exercises for people because it illustrates what I'm talking about. Okay, how long a 100 watt light bulb would run using one kilogram of various fuels. So you could uh, conceivably, if you burned uh, one kilogram of wood, you could run a 100 watt light bulb for 1.2 days. For coal, one kilogram of coal would be 3.8 days. Uh, one kilogram of oil, 4.8 days. In uranium, well, using a breeder reactor where you could, you know, reuse the partially of the fuel, uh, 25,700 years. And so, the point is, is that as what you will find is that each, if you start with wood and make your way down, each kilogram of these various things, the thing that you will notice is more energy dense. This is the same kilogram weight 
for all of these, but yet the density of energy, the ability, the potential energy that's inherent in that kilogram of that, of that fuel, whether it's wood, coal, oil, or uranium, there's more in each kilogram as you move, it becomes more dense. And that is the key to why we have the wealth we have, why we have the civilization we have, why we have things and, and, and services that we do, okay? And you have to understand this in order to have a rational, real discussion around energy policy, okay? And we don't do that because people don't understand these basic concepts. There's a reason why, um, you know, we have the things that we do. It's because the certain amount of energy inputs that go into it, whether you want to call it BTUs, kilowatts, whatever, it could all be calculated. And the question then becomes, if we need 100 units of energy to maintain the civilization we have, but we're only going to put 95 units in, then the complexity of the, of the, of the, of the economy, the, the wealth of the economy, of, of, the, of the body around it, the people goes down. Okay, that's another thing that's interesting. I'm going to uh, show this now. I suggest you get this book and read it. This guy, uh, this is a textbook, actually, Charles Hall. He is the guy that uh, came up with the idea. He's a professor. I think it's a State College of New York, one of the universities up there. I heard him on a couple podcasts. So I guess I've become fascinated or at least um, really, really interested in this energy return on energy invested. He's the guy that kind of came up with that. And he did it by studying fish, migratory fish, and you know how much uh, food they needed. Uh, it's a long story. You can, but this textbook is available on Amazon. I will put a link in the show notes. I suggest that you get it. It's about fifty bucks. I think you can get it on Kindle for like forty bucks. I don't know. It's worth reading because it gives you an understanding of energy and how it's measured, calculated, inputs gives you a reference point in an education that if you don't have, you really, you know, for, for me just talking basics on this channel, this gives you an in-depth, it's like going through the class that the guy teaches about this. And I, you know, it's worth 50 bucks. It's worth reading. Um, it's worth studying because um, I think over the next 10, 20 years, as energy becomes scarce, as at least in the West, as the political class and policymakers seem to be going off the deep end and don't really understand these concepts. If you do, it's going to give you the advantage you need, I think, to become extremely wealthy. And you have to protect yourselves. I mean, you have to start thinking about, do you want to live in a society where the energy inputs are going to go down over time? Because that's what's happening in the West. That's the policy, okay? Um, and that's because for whatever the agenda is, we can argue about that. If it's a conspiracy, the WEF or stupidity, I don't really know. It's irrelevant. But that is the policy of the West to go to less divert, less, um, you know, you can stick solar or wind in here somewhere, less dense energy. We should be moving to nuclear as much as we can. But we're not. There's a lot of resistance. We just talked about that the, the Greens in Europe are against that. Okay. Uh, the sanctions that were self imposed. Uh, on themselves by Europe from their major energy producer, that's less energy inputs into their economy. Again, if you have a complex system, which is a modern technological industrial economy, and it requires a certain amount of energy inputs to maintain that. What, one of the things he talks about in here, which is I like is, you know, the tendency over time for things to go to chaos. 
Now think about this. If you have a backyard, like in, you know, a place where you get a lot of vegetation growth, like Florida, or even my yard in Texas, tropical, if you don't, if you're not constantly out there trimming, if you're not constantly mowing, if you're not, I mean, what happens? You just, the place goes back to wildness. You see that like in Detroit, you know, they tear down these neighborhoods or these neighborhoods get abandoned and they're already seeing like, you know, animal wildlife come back and all these trees and grasslands come back because that's what happens. You have to apply energy to that, to that chaos to get it under control. Okay. And that's one of the things he's talking about. So that's what we have done. We've created these complex systems and subsystems in uh, society that generate all the goods and services and give us the comforts that we enjoy, but we don't have a concept of how that works. You know, people don't understand, you know, the first and second law of thermodynamics. They don't understand entropy. They don't understand these things. Okay. And this will give you a good uh, primer on that. And, you know, more so more really education uh, that you need, because I think this is going to be the major discussion. And, you know, think about it, you know, you may, after, you know, if you're going to be in a society that's going to limit the amount of energy inputs into the complex systems, then what happens over time is these systems become less complex, and then your standard of living is going to go down. And so this is where you end up when you think these things through. So I'll put a link to this in the show notes. Yes, if you go there, it's on Amazon. If you buy it, I get a, a small percentage. Uh, that's just how it is. I just wanted to uh, be full disclosure. But uh, this is a very important uh, book, and I, I suggest you read it and, and have it so you can refer back to it because these concepts are not taught, and yet we're making policy, and people are making policy based on emotions and rhetoric and lack of knowledge, I think, in many cases. So uh, this is Ursula Vandalin. I really do not like this woman, but I, I, you know, they're getting ready to have the elections I mentioned earlier in the video in Italy tomorrow. Um, and she basically says here in this short video, which I'll put a link to, um, of course, I, I don't know if I quoted her exactly, but she basically said, if things don't go the way they should, we have the tools if things do not go in the right direction is what she says. That's what she uses the term, the right direction. So basically, if a, if a government comes to power in Italy, which it looks like it's going to overwhelmingly, that is more uh, prone to worrying about the Italian people first versus the EU and the, you know, this is the dynamic, right? People like Ursula Vandalis, she's German, but she doesn't consider herself German first. She considers herself European, and she wants to have this European model where it's like the United States, but it's not. It's 27 countries, with all these different ethnic people and histories and languages and belief systems. It's, it's not going to mesh. OK, there's no unifying concept except for Europe. OK, and it's it's more of a Tower of Babel situation. And so they can see what's happening because they're already having trouble with like a country like Hungary. Hungary is not going along with the program. So they're already changing their narrative that one, they don't, they don't want it where one EU member can veto the entire policy, which is current policy. Um, and they're having trouble with Poland. She even says this, Poland, Hungary, she calls them out. And she says that if Italy doesn't vote correctly, basically, we have the tools to deal with that. Um, and what does that mean? Okay, so look, it's kind of like in Star Wars when they captured Princess Leah and uh, Darth Vader shows up and she, and uh, you know, she says, you know, the tighter you, the tighter you make your grip, more systems are going to fall through, more star systems are going to fall through your, your hand. Um, and this is what's going to happen here. I mean, people, 
if you want to stay in power as a politician in Europe and you're in this energy crisis, you're going to have to start looking out for your own people and the heck with the EU and Ursula van der Leyen, okay? And she, 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 they know this at the commission. And so this is going to be interesting to see how this plays out. Am I projecting that the EU is going to collapse in the next three to six months? No. What I am saying over time, the thing doesn't make sense and now cracks are forming, okay? And they have, they had a whole bunch of problems even before this energy crisis, okay? They were all in, in debt. Um, and now you're going to be in situations where, uh, countries there are going to see their industry, 30 to 40% of their industry shut down because of this, what's happening because of the lack of energy inputs. This is going to be devastating. Okay. The riots, the, the, the demonstrations right now are semi-peaceful, but they're going to turn from being peaceful to being very ugly if they don't come up with a solution and it's not more windmills. Okay. And, uh, so I just think that I like to pick on Ursula um, she's a globalist all the way. She's totally European. She could care less about Germany or all these other countries. She's European first, and you're going to get with the program or else. And so it'll be interesting because, you know, you're going to see repression of dissidents. You're going to see um, people being deplatformed. I'm talking about people that are speaking out against this nonsense that they're pushing. They're going to tighten. They already said they're going to tighten down. They've already, you know, activated and put plans together to deal with demonstrations. Is that democracy? Is that, you know, th these people are so twisted and evil that anything that comes out of their mouth is just a lie. Democracy, free speech, rights of individuals. They don't exist when the, when the, when the EU itself and the project is, 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 is threatened. Okay, they will do these. Again, people do not give up power without a fight. You're literally going to have to walk in there, grab her, and throw her out. Okay, that's what's going to have to happen. She's not going to leave on her own. Of course, well, you know, I did my best and it really didn't work. I think I'll go retire now. That's not what's going to happen, folks. You're not going to, she's not even elected. You're not going to vote her out. She's not elected by the people of Europe. She's elected by the, you know, this convoluted, I can't even get into it, the commission, how it all works, how they get in there, the MEPs for the European, it, it's parliament, it's just a big mess. These people are unelected, they're there for one reason or one reason only, to advance the project. And so when you see these things happen, it'll be interesting to see uh, as, you know, you have people burning their bills in Italy saying, we're not paying these energy prices. The people that are coming into the government are going to have to respond to that. Am I saying that they are uh, um, any better? or have a better uh, policies, I don't know. I'm just telling you that you're already starting to see the reactions of various, uh, from various elections around the world. Okay, guys, that's it for this week. Appreciate uh, the viewership. Again, um, you know, we're trying to grow the channel. It keeps growing. Trying to hit that. I want to hit 10,000 subscribers, hopefully, by the end of the, this year. That would be tremendous um accomplishments so if you're not a subscriber hit the subscribe button you know like the video share the videos um help us out and we'll spread the message all right guys that's it for this week we'll talk to you next week